0: who comes, oh, bleh, now I gotta start over. (laughs) Allison, you stop laughing or I'll make you do the book talk. You're listening to the Read Aloud Revival Podcast. This is the podcast that helps you make meaningful and lasting connections with your kids through books. everybody. Sarah McKenzie here. You've got episode 67. Totally excited about today's show because I'm having a conversation with somebody who is very likely my favorite living author, or at least among my very tippy-top favorite authors, for sure. Also, I invited my 13-year-old Allison onto the show to talk with me and the author, so that's going to be fun. And in this episode, we're going to talk about whether characters in books should serve as our kids' role models, or not, uh, the way stories inspire us to live a better story ourselves, even if the characters in the books we read are not good role models, and how Narnia tells more truth than nonfiction books. Intrigued? It's a good episode. I can't wait to share it with you. Hey, before we get started, would you mind heading to iTunes and leaving us a rating or review? When you leave a rating and review in iTunes, it helps iTunes know that this is a podcast they should share with more people. So whether that's a family that's just getting started with reading aloud or is just looking for a way to make meaningful and lasting connections with their kids, it helps them find the Read Aloud Revival podcasts and all of our great resources. All you have to do is go to iTunes, search for Read Aloud Revival, leave us a star rating and a really quick like one-sentence review. It means the world to me. I read every single one. I want to make sure you know we've updated the Read Aloud Revival book list. We actually made it super slick so that you can just, with a click of a button, download every book list, a picture book list for every month of the year, series books for kids who are struggling to read, fantasy books. With one single click, you can print out the entire list. It's really awesome. Tuck it into a notebook. And it's also all really easy to click and find titles online. It's sort of my pride and joy, this book list. So (laughs) make sure you grab our new updated version. All you need to do to get that is head to readaloudrevival.com. Click the big green button there at the top of the page. Okay, let's talk to today's guest. I can't wait to introduce you to him. Jonathan Rogers calls his novels fantasy adventure stories told in an American accent. The author of the absolutely fabulous Wilder King trilogy and The Charlatan's Boy, Jonathan combines humor and storytelling to create middle-grade novels that are perfect for fans of either Tolkien or Twain. But he's also the author of several nonfiction books, including The World According to Narnia and a biography of Flannery O'Connor called The Terrible Speed of Mercy. Jonathan received an undergraduate degree from Furman University and holds a PhD in 17th century literature from Vanderbilt University, which actually makes him Dr. Rogers. (laughs) In addition to his writing work, he is head of program at New College Franklin in Franklin, Tennessee, and teaches creative writing both online and in live action seminars. He lives in Nashville with his wife, six kids, and a Labrador retriever. And I am thrilled that he's joining me today. I'll tell you what. I read the first book in the Wilder King trilogy. It's called The Bark of the Bog Owl earlier this year, and it instantly flew to the top of my own charts. It's truly one of my favorite books I've ever read. I expect I'll read it over and over through the years. I have a hard time describing how much I love the whole series. I think it's one of the most well-written, engaging, and riveting books I've ever read. It's perfect for kids age 9 to 14. Although I can't really imagine anyone with kids older than that, or even a little younger than that, won't love it every bit as much. So we'll have links in the show notes of this episode so you can get your hands on his work, The Bark of the Bog Owl, and the rest of the Wilder King trilogy if you go to readaloudrevival.com and look for episode 67. Today, my 13-year-old Allison is back here on the Read Aloud Revival podcast. You'll remember she helped me interview Jonathan Augsier back in episode 56, I believe it was. Today, she's going to help me chat with Jonathan Rogers. Allison, hi. Hey. So glad you're here. So before we talk to Dr. Rogers about his books, what did you like best about the Wilder King books?
1: I found them impossible to put down, personally.
0: Yeah, that's always a favorite thing, right? Yes. (laughs) I
1: love books like that, except you were probably supposed to be doing your chores.
0: Most of the time. (laughs) Okay, well, without further ado, let's welcome Jonathan Rogers to the show. Jonathan, welcome to the Read Aloud Revival.
2: Well, thank you. I'm so glad to be here. This is uh, what a what a sweet introduction. Um, I'm, that means a lot to me for you to say that it's, uh, that these books are among your favorites.
0: Well, you know, I had heard them recommended over and over, and I finally picked one up at one of the great homeschool conventions at the Rabbit Room booth. And I started reading on the plane ride home, and I'm pretty sure I ignored like every meal I was supposed to feed my children and all of the laundry and. <laughs> Everything the next couple days, while well, I devoured the rest of your series and the charlatans boy because I was not ready to leave the world of Cornwall. <laughs> so you and I have a lot to talk about. But before we do, I want to let Allison chat with you a little bit about the Wilder King books. So to set this stage for our listeners, I want to describe a little bit about the first book, which is The Bark of the Bog Owl. I already told you, I think this book is perfect for nine to 14s. Also for kids a little younger than that, kids a lot older than that, like me, <laughs> they'll enjoy it just as much. This is the story of Aiden, who's a pretty well-behaved boy in a family in Cornwall who ends up being called to something a little higher and demands a little more courage than he realizes that he has. He kind he's a, he's a shepherd boy. He's just sort of like one of the younger brothers, just sort of living normal life. In The setting is set in a swamp that looks a lot like uh, Georgia or Florida, uh, South Georgia and Florida. And so you have kind of this picture of just ordinary life. The Fiji Fen is, according to the people who live in Cornwall, a myth. They don't believe that there are people in, that there are Fiji's living in the Fiji Fen. I love some of the characters in this book, the truth speaker. I can actually recite from memory some of the things that the truth speaker says to Aiden during the book because they're such powerful, poignant moments. And the bantering and the fun between the different, the everyday normal relationships between brothers and friends in the book, there it's. It's really, I don't know how you did it, Jonathan. I don't know how you did such a perfect marrying of like the kind of spirit of Tolkien, the spirit of Lewis and the Americana kind of vibe of Huckleberry Finn and Tom Sawyer, but you did it. It's just kind of amazing.
2: (laughs) Somebody reviewed probably book two and commented on how it was obvious that that I was influenced by Twain and it and I had to acknowledge, well, yes, I guess I was. I hadn't it wasn't conscious though. I wasn't I wasn't saying I'm gonna sit down and try to write like Twain, but I'm just sort of soaked it up so much. And um, and so it just sort of came out. And um, that was a sometimes you don't know what sometimes you don't know what your influences are, right? And you know, talking talked about the, the leaf mold of the mind, all your everything you've read, everything you've seen and, and heard kind of goes in your brain and decomposes and things come out of it.
1: So how long did it take you to write the Bark of the Bog Out? Let's
2: see, the Bark of the Bog owl I started uh In March and finished in December, so that was what's that, eight or nine months.
1: What was the ins- inspiration for the Feechies in the Bark of the Bog Owl? or oh. actually, the whole Lumber King trilogy.
2: Some of the old boys I went to school with. You <laughs> tell the truth. I, had a bit <laughs> like, I was really trying to to. um Well, this is a story I've told it many times, but I'll tell it. I'll tell it again. I, I worked with a, a guy when I was in. I was, I was working my PhD at Vanderbilt. But I went down to my hometown for the summer to to work on a remodeling crew. And one of my partners on my crew was a guy named Jake, who was from way out in the boonies. And I just never knew anybody like him. He he was just so... you know, When he came to town, and the town was Warner Robins, Georgia. It wasn't a big town. But he acted like he was just overwhelmed by the hustle and bustle because he was so countrified. And I've got all kinds of stories about Jake. But one of the things he did, he would come to work looking very sleepy every morning. And I, I figured he was up to something in the, in, at night because he was just so tired every the morning. So I asked him, Jake, what are you, well, why are you so tired every morning? He said, well, after work, I go home, I take a little nap until dark, and then I go out and I hunt wild boar in the swamp. <laughs> and I said, oh, okay, well, that's very interesting. Uh, tell me, I was just trying to engage. Him, like, so like, what kind of gun does one use to hunt boar? He said, oh, I don't use a gun. I've got dogs. And they go in and catch the boar by the ear. And then I wrestle him down and tie him up and tear down the pole. And I, and I thought he was making it up. I thought he was just pulling my leg. But then he, he brought pictures. He had this little photo album of all the hogs he had caught and all the dogs. And, and, um, and he, he came to work crying one day. And I said, Jake, what's wrong? Why are you crying? And he said, last night I was hunting in swamp and an alligator ate my dog. <laughs> and thought, if I ever write a book, Jake is going to be in the book. And so Jake kind of became Dobro Turtlebane. And then T- Dobro became a whole tribe of Fiji folks.
0: When you started writing then, did did like the, because the whole Fiji culture, that seems like the wrong word to describe the Fiji's, <laughs> but the whole Fiji culture, yeah, it's very rich. Like you've got so much going on there. Did it sort of unfold as you were writing or before you started writing the story, did you already have that pre-formed?
2: It definitely, I, I had the central idea of these are people who, I mean, again, who acted like Jay. They bagged physical courage. They were very emotional, loved jokes.
1: Okay. Oh, by the way, I really love how all of your Fichis adore their mothers. It's hilarious. <laughs> so, is Aiden like you?
2: To some extent, I mean, the especially his not being sure if he's really ready to be to be what he's being called to be. I think a lot of people can relate to that. For me, the most. Really what drove this story from the beginning was the fact that people actually Allison, people your age who know God has a plan for me and I expect to do from what I understand, you know, I'm going to be living out this life of adventure really that God has called me to. But I'm kind of stuck in the middle here. I'm not really a child. I don't but I don't have a driver's license. And I, you know, I'm kind of stuck right here in this in-between place. You know you, you have a sense of a calling, but there's not much you can do about it right now it feels like and so um, and so the sort of living in that in that space that's kind of where Aiden comes from right and, and he's he has to decide how is' he going to relate to the grownups in his life who maybe they've taught him the right things but they don't always live what they've taught him um I'm getting your, your question was is Aiden like me I mean some in, I think every character a an author writes has to come from somewhere in that author so in some ways I'm like Aiden. But I don't think I'm as courageous as Aiden, for instance.
1: How old were you when you started writing?
2: Oh, goodness. I mean, when I I was old enough to hold a pencil, I I started writing little stories. I I wrote a... The oldest one we know of is the story about Hazel the horse who jumped over the fence. And I spelled it (laughs) F-I-N-T-S.
0: That's because you're from the South. I love
2: it. (laughs) And um, and so when I was really little, I, I mean, I just knew I just wanted to write stories from... Really before I could write, I wanted to write, before I could write sentences, I wanted to write stories, but kind of lost touch with that, sort of watching too much television and came back to it later and only started, you know, really the first time I ever wrote a book or even a, any fiction was The Bark of the Bog Owl. I'd, I'd never even written a short story before The Bark of the Bog Owl. And that you know, I was in my thirties at that point.
0: That was the first like complete story that you wrote was The Bark of the Bog Owl.
2: Yeah, yeah well, it was.
0: You've said this. I love this. You've said a good children's book dramatizes adventure and makes it seem like the sort of life that nobody would want to miss out on. It doesn't just tell the reader what's right, it helps the reader to want what's right. Let's talk about that for a minute, because this is where I think a story has so much more power than like a didactic lesson from a parent to a child or a teacher to a student to inspire that love of virtue or inspire that desire to live out the adventure God's called you to that is, it's a unique power that story has.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, that's story works on the level of desire, right? That's exactly it. Anytime you you read anybody who talks about how to write a story, the the question is always, what does your main character want? You know, What is it that you, that your main character is trying to get? What choices do they make on the basis of that desire? What consequences come out of that choice? That is sort of, Story Plotting 101, but it's also what we mean when we speak of character in real life, right? I mean, it really comes down to what do you want and, and how are you going to untangle the conflicting desires that you have? Because I want lots of things and it's really helpful for me to slow down and say, OK, what do I really want, though? Because, yes, I want for everybody to like me. That is something I want. But is that what I want the most? Because I think what I might want more than everybody liking me is to do the right thing or to please God, or, you know, there, there, I think it's really helpful to acknowledge, of course, you want all this bad stuff. (laughs) There are all kinds of things you want that aren't good for you. It's really helpful to say, but that's not what you really, really want. It's not what you want the most. I mean, there, there are all kinds of things that are true about the world we live in, but then there are things that are truer and things that are truest of all. And it really helps to, to sort through those things. And I, I really think fiction or let's just say narrative, right? Let's don't don't limit it to fiction because there's all kinds of nonfiction stories that that are really helpful in that regard too. They help us sort out what is it that we really want. And because the world's always offering us some shallow satisfaction, it's easy to get sort of cheap satisfactions and the world is dishing those out constantly and it helps to take a step back and say, whoa, 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 is that really what I desire? Well, that's um,
0: that's what the Charlotte book, The charlatan's Boy. I think that's what that book is really about. You don't even realize it till the end, really, but it's where you have these Fijis who have very like primal kind of instinctual desires like I want like they are just very impulsive and I don't know what the word is, except that they seem to want all these things. Then you have this main character in The charlatan's Boy who wants something deeper and it takes him a while to figure out what it
2: is that he really wants. yeah, so not have a language for him, right
0: yeah. Yeah.
2: And because we, we can't give ourselves a name. It comes from outside.
0: Hmm.
2: And and so I think the now now we're off on we're way beyond fiction now, but but our prevailing culture now basically says you get to decide what's going to make you happy and then you pursue it. I mean that's that's every it's almost every Disney movie you've ever seen. You know, you have the song at the beginning, the I want song, where somebody says I want this and then they spend the rest of the time going after it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, but the truth <laughs> is we don't get to choose what's going to make us happy.
1: Hmm. We can
2: choose whether to pursue it or pursue something else, but we don't really get to choose what's going to make us happy.
0: That's right. Oh, Let's talk about protagonists then and their roles as good examples or not for our kids. So some books have really good, strong, you know, the kids or the parents or the characters, I should just say, they're really good role models for our kids as they're reading. Mm -hmm. And then other books that are, Just as equally, or maybe sometimes more so, engaging. Maybe the characters aren't the greatest role models. What is the role of a character, or are we even? Is role model the right word? I'm even looking for. Can we talk about that a little bit?
2: Yeah, I mean, so one thing. What's a role model? I mean, is it just is it just a person who does the right thing? Is is that a role model? And or is it? I mean, I think a role model really is somebody who makes you. I look at that life and go, that okay. It's not. It's not just that person did the right thing that person makes me want to do the right thing. Ah, And so, you know, I, I remember some books I read when I was little where I, everybody was doing the right thing and that was fine. I mean, you know, but it didn't, nothing about it made me wish I were that person. Yeah. And, and I think I mean, that's, that's one thing I love about adventure stories is this person going out and having adventures, which always involves getting yourself in trouble, always get, you know, getting yourself in some dilemma. And so, for me, I mean again, it, it always comes down to desire. Does this reading experience change my desires for the better? And so so if my character does the wrong thing, if my protagonist does the wrong thing, we've got a problem if, if I as a reader say, Boy, I really want to do that. That seems like a great great way to live. But to the truth, I don't know that many books that, that do that, that, that really make me want the wrong thing. Yet uh, I'm not my I'm not as as Deeply read in middle grade fiction, as a lot of people are, but but most of the books I read, I don't feel like they're pointing me in the wrong direction or you know pointing my children in the wrong direction.
0: So one of the concerns we hear a lot at Read Lutter Revival is parents who are concerned that the, the characters in the kids' books maybe uh, maybe they're lying, maybe they're hiding something from the grownups. Maybe they're, they're just doing something wrong. And maybe that goes unpunished or unresolved or the child doesn't feel remorseful or whatever. And I think the concern from parents is if they see other kids getting away with bad behavior, that will make them want to do that bad behavior. As I've watched my own kids sort of read books in which these kinds of things happen, I don't see that where they they want to copy the exact play-by-play. I mean, our kids aren't that... like They're not literal copycats. I think maybe the key is that, like, trusting that something on is happening on a deeper level with our kids that they're seeing in a book a little bit of light shed on humanity, and even if that is shed on a good part or on a not so good part of someone's humanity, it helps us go, "I'm like that too," and then think about how we would
2: respond. Does a story help your child see what kind of world they're really living in? And so that that is a two edged sword. On the one hand, it's true that. That in the world I live in, sometimes people lie and they get away with it, and they don't feel remorse and all that kind of stuff. And so that ha- that happens on the one hand, but at a deeper level, as a story, helped me take a step back from from the life I that I live. You know, we can get very myopic in our life, and and the gospel is this story that you think you're living in, the the story in which nobody's gonna look out for you if you don't look out for yourself. You know, you got all these the story that encourages us, the story we get on television and every single commercial you've ever seen, for instance, Mm -hmm. you know, go out and and grab life by the horns and make sure you get, you get everything that's coming to you. Mm -hmm. That's the story the world's telling us. And in good fiction, takes a step back and says, well, you know, maybe there's something truer than that. Maybe you're living in a story that's bigger than that story. And that's that, for me, that's the real moral value of stories. It doesn't have that much to do with good examples or bad examples so much as the question of is it introducing me or reminding me of the bigger story that I'm really living in, and so I think television lends itself to the story that the world tells, and fiction. It's not. I'm, I'm sure there are plenty of books in the world that you know for children that that buy into the to the world's story. But there's something about if someone's going go to go the trouble to write a whole book, they tend not to. Go for that low hanging fruit of self indulgence. I mean, TV is all about self indulgence and selling you stuff. Yeah. And there's something about books and as a genre that at least tends in a better direction.
0: Yeah. Um, and I think the other thing is, and Katherine Patterson said this in, I read a collection of her essays recently, which is so beautiful. And she was writing about writing for children. She was saying, you know, the reason that we feel a lot of times you might remember from like being a kid, reading a book and feeling like the characters were your closer friends or closer to you than your family or than your real
1: friends, Mm. right?
0: And I still feel like that as an adult sometimes. She says the reason for that is because when we read, we are getting to eavesdrop on the soul of another. So I think Mm. in my own reading experience, even when I've read stories where we might go, well, there's not really great role models in this book no, I don't want my children to become just an act like the children in this book. What they're getting to do is like maybe Mm -hmm. eavesdrop on the soul of someone who's different from them and then grow in empathy and compassion. Like this is what life feels like to someone. We live in such a, I mean, it's really hard for us to see the world from anyone's point of view, but our own. And I think reading one of the greatest benefits of reading is that it forces us outside of our own little self-absorbed bubbles, right?
2: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I that, remember that book, um, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Remember that book? Yeah, I love that book. Yeah. Well, I can only like remember one of those seven habits. This is probably why I'm not a very effective person, but but that one habit is to seek first to understand and then to be understood.
0: Mm, yeah, and, yeah.
2: And books give us a lot of practice and understanding. You don't, you don't even have the option of being understood when you're reading, right? <laughs> All you can do is understand. I can't make those characters understand me. I can only try to understand them. And that's great practice for moral living. If we're talking about, you know, Character building and morality and all that kind of stuff. That's great practice. Uh, Reading makes people understanders.
0: Yeah, I love that. Uh, So good. I love that that's what you mean too when you're talking about moral benefits of stories. Cause I think sometimes we forget that or we don't know that. And we think that the moral benefit of a story is reading an Aesop fable and then being able to have our child parrot back whatever we think the moral of the story is or our kids becoming like, I know there's a lot of parents who are worried about their older kids even reading books that may have a little bit of. Well, a good example actually is The Great Gilly Hopkins by Katherine Patterson, which has a child who uses some foul language. My kids have all mm. read that book, and none of my kids have started using that foul language. They're no, we just got to trust our kids more than that to see something deeper and bigger and to help, you know, that they can read a book. And I think it meets them somewhere where we can't meet them just in a normal didactic conversation.
2: Yeah. 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 If you don't mind my returning to this idea of, of, stories reminding us what what big story we're a part of yeah i mean think about what's that what's the um the christmas story where it's got the bad kids who participate in a in a oh um,
0: the christmas pageant the
2: best christmas pageant ever yeah i love that story now there's nobody there's nobody body to imitate in that story i don't want my kids acting like the herdman's i don't really want my kids acting like the self-righteous narrator but the big picture is these little jerks the herdman's Get stopped short by the gospel in the end, when our, our self-righteous narrator understands something much bigger than the little narrative she had in her head of "I'm the good kid and these are the bad kids," and you know, and she's so easily shocked. And that you know, the, the little, i guess she's a narrator. She may just be the—I can't remember if it's first person or third person, but the, the person whose point of view is told through. Mm-hmm.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And, and that story it just really stops everybody short at the end. I'm, now I'm—you know—guess it's a spoiler, but you know, at the end of the story when these awful kids are um, come up against the Christmas story for the first time. And it makes our little self-righteous narrator come, you know, come against the Christmas story really for the first time. And we get a better sense of what that story really means. No, it's been a while since i read it, but I don't think there's a suitable role model in that whole book. (laughs) And yet great story that really arrests us with the gospel. And, um, or think about now, okay, I'm about to, and now I'm about to confess something bad. I have, I've never read Ramona and Beezus, but I have seen the movie. Uh-huh. Is yeah. that a, a revival podcast? I don't know if you're allowed to say that or not, but I, I've seen the movie. <laughs> and and so I don't know if, I don't think this happens in the book, but that little, Ramona's a little sister, right? Yes. Kind of bratty. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Annoying. So Ramona's been a bad, you know, she's, she's been bad the whole, the whole time and, and a uh, little obnoxious. And you know how normally, and she feels misunderstood, she thinks her parents don't love her. And normally in a kid's movie like that, you know, the parent apologizes at the end for not paying attention or whatever. And I love that movie because at the end, you know, you got she thinks the dad's, you know, doesn't understand that the dad's always working and not paying attention to her. And then at the end, she finds this book and the whole time he was drawing pictures of her, like like she was on his mind all the time. And she's this little brat. And I just love that. It's such a great picture of the gospel and has nothing to do with role models. It has to do with a little girl realizing what kind of big story she's really living in it's a story where her father loves her and where she doesn't where her bad behavior doesn't define her relationship with him and so you know you ask about role models i'm not opposed to good role models in 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 children's fiction but i certainly don't think it's the most important
0: There's a, I know I keep mentioning Catherine Patterson, but really this collection of essays was so good. One of the things I just pulled it off my shelf so I could read it to you. She says this, fiction is not the gospel, but it can be a voice crying in the wilderness. And for the writer and the reader who know grace, it will not be a cry of despair, but a cry of hope, a voice crying in our wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord.
2: Wow, I, I, I've never read her essays. Those are great. Oh, her
0: her fiction is really beautiful, really sad, and oftentimes mm-hmm. banned in schools for language or things like that. But she has this collection of essays called A Sense of Wonder. It's a little hard to find. I got mine used, but they're out of print. They're like a, it's like a collection of some essays, and also she's won all kinds of awards. So every time she gives an award speech, they would transcribe it. And I can't even, I don't remember the last time I underlined so many <laughs> passages really? in this single book. Yeah, yeah.
2: Just well, dig that up. That's, that sounds great. Yeah.
0: Okay. So let's switch gears a little bit to Narnia because you've written this. You said it takes a certain amount of imagination to see that there is something more real, more solid than the world we see around us. But that's a foundational truth of the Christian faith. So let's talk a little bit about that in the context of Lewis's Narnia and how especially fantasy, right? Fantasy has this ability. I think it was Chesterton. I'm going to look it up, actually. Chesterton says, fairy tales say the apples were golden only to refresh the forgotten moment when we found that they were green. They make rivers run with wine only to make us remember for one wild moment that they run with water. It's like that ability of a fantasy book to show us more clearly the world we live in than a realistic book, right?
2: And that's, by the way, relevant to the wilder king stories, that i was going to have in in the second book i was going to have a swamp goblin oh and my wife says why would you have a swamp goblin when you've got alligators i was like
0: all right good point that's fantastic yeah
2: i've I've got this whole world that that i guess i wasn't really a chesterton reader when i wrote those books but if i had been (laughs) it would have been this idea that the chesterton always awakens me to just what an amazing world this is that we live in. And so, you know, the Wilder King stories, the natural habitats in those stories really are designed to evoke wonder in the world that we actually live in. You know, the first time I saw an alligator in real life, it was a transformative moment for me to realize that I live in a world where those things live. And it was like, (laughs) was like encountering a dragon. And I was nine miles from the, from the nice little suburban house that I'd spent my whole life in. And I thought, what kind of world is this I'm living in? are, they out And you know, where you live, I guess, grizzly bears, right? Yeah. I mean, we don't they-
0: have alligators, but when I was in Florida last month, I kept asking people, so do you really see alligators like out in the yeah. wild? And they'd say all the time. And I thought that is mm-hmm. amazing. No, I mean, we have other bears, I guess. I haven't really seen too many, but Moose are really dangerous and um I've seen my fair share of those and those kinds of, you know, Northwest creatures. But it is a startling thing, but you don't even notice it until somebody writes a book like the Wilder King trilogy, where you realize that gators I mean, like I told you, I'm a 35 year old woman who started Googling YouTube videos on galligators yeah. because I was so like, wow, after reading yeah. the book.
2: Yeah. And there's but there's nothing in those stories that doesn't actually exist in I mean there's but those are the most unoriginal stories you've ever read because there's nothing in there that really happened somewhere else. I mean, I think they're they're put together in a way that, you know, is a combination of things, but, but there's nothing all that. Un- Maybe the alligators are a little bigger than alligators in real life, but they, they're just acting like alligators, you know, and the panther acts like a panther.
0: Yeah. We had N.D. Wilson on the Read a Lot Revival for episode 44. And we'll link to this episode mm-hmm. in the show notes too, because we talked all about magic and fear and that role in children's books. And One of the things we talked about is in his book, Hunter Cupboards, you know, he places it in a very ordinary town in Henry, Kansas, where everything is very normal. And he talks about how his goal being not fantasy because you want to escape the world, but fantasy to wake you up to the world around you. And so that he was hoping that when kids read the book, that they would be like, look at the world they live in with eyes wide open.
2: Yeah, that that is right on. Planner Connor said, you know, Writing is not an escape from reality, but a plunge into reality. Oh gosh. And,
0: yeah. Isn't that That's great. Yeah, I'm gonna write that one down. I am so excited to get this book into as many read aloud revival hands as possible. I love it. You know, there are a few I'm not a big re-reader, although I should be more of a rereader, but this is a book that I know I'll be rereading like comfort food, like when I just want a book that I know is gonna be a wonderful experience to reread. Hey, are you making an audio book, by the way?
2: Well, by the time this podcast airs, yes. Um you and I are, were talking in June now and I am in the middle of recording in my, you know, as read by the author a, a read by the author audiobook. Awesome.
0: My favorite. Yeah. Jonathan, yeah. thank you so much for joining me. I am so, this yeah. has been a great conversation. I've really enjoyed it.
2: It has been. Let's, let's do it again sometime.
0: Now it's time for let the kids speak. This is my favorite part of the podcast, where kids tell us about their favorite stories that have been read aloud to them.
3: Hi, my name is Adele.
0: How old are you, Adele? Three. And where do
3: you live? Michigan. And what is the name of your favorite book? Monster at the End of This Book. Hmm.
1: Why is it your favorite?
3: Because I really like that.
1: What do you like about it?
3: the that- that he was embarrassed that he was the monster.
0: <laughs> is it a funny
1: book?
3: Yes. Mm-hmm. Hi, my name is Lily. I live in Michigan. I'm five years old. My favorite book is the Bible. And someday we can go to heaven if we love and obey God. And God made the whole wide world. That's my favorite part. Thank you. Bye. Hi, my name is George, and I'm five years old and I live in College Grove, Tennessee. My favorite book is Boxcar Children. Why I like it is because they solve mysteries, and my favorite character is Benny. Hello, my name is Kaylee. I'm 10 years old, and I'm from Portland, Oregon. My favorite series is The Wayne Feather Saga by Andrew Peterson. I like it because of all the adventure and bravery. My favorite character is Lily Igby and, and I love how she plays the whistle harp. We named one of our rabbits after Lily. My favorite book is The Trumpet of the Swan and I like it because it has so many good things about Louis and his trumpet. Five and a half years old and I live in Alabama. What is your name? Asher. How old are you? Four. Where do you live? In Alabama. What is your favorite book? Paddington. Why do you like Paddington? Because it's so fun. Hello, my name is Abigail, and I am seven years old. I live in Georgia, and my favorite book is The Hobbit because of Bilbo Baggins. and is the best burglar in the world.
0: What's your name?
3: Michael. And How old are you? Four.
0: Where are you from?
3: I'm from Georgia. What's your favorite book? Five Little Monkeys Jumping on the Bed.
2: Why do you like this book?
3: Because they fall off. Hi, my name is Daniela, and I'm seven, almost eight. And I live in Rhode Island, and my favorite book is Wonderful Wizard of Eyes. And the part I love is when Dorothy gets back to her home. My name is Penelope Wilson. I live in Kokomo, Indiana, and my favorite book is Ruby the Red Fairy because my favorite color is red, and there are people like goblins and fairies and Jack Frost, and there are two girls who meet, and I am seven
0: years old. Well, thank you so much, kids. What great book recommendations. That's it for today. Next week, we'll be back with a mini episode. I've got some book recommendations I'm excited to share with you. If you haven't already, make sure you are subscribed to the podcast. There are some wonderful things happening, great free resources, book lists, and helps that we send out through email. You're missing them if you are not on that list. So to get on the email list, just go to readaloudrevival.com Click the big blue button and pop your email in right there. If you are subscribed to the Read Aloud Revival podcast in your favorite podcast app, the one on your iPhone maybe, or like a free app that plays your podcast, I usually use one called Overcast. The podcast will also pop up automatically on your phone or iPod whenever there's a new episode. But you still want to be on the email list because you're missing some of our best book lists and resources that we only send out that way readaloudrevival.com will get you everything you need. Thanks so much for listening. And until next time, go make meaningful and lasting connections with your
1: kids through books.